0: than the one before we have uh, talks every Thursday at 5 p.m. Uh, next week, I just wanted to give you a heads up that we'll have Sonia Livingstone of the London School of Economics and Political Science speaking with us. For those of you who don't know, Sonia does really fantastic, uh, widely, highly regarded work uh, on kids and sort of digital live new media stuff. So she's going to speak... Next week about living and learning in the digital age, and I know she's just released a really interesting report on the subject. So definitely next week uh, at uh, five. For those of you who don't know, you can find out about all of our events at the CMSW website, and put the URL up there. Uh, so tonight, also just before after the talk, don't run off too quickly because we'll have some snacks and drinks and fruit coming over for a little, little, little so if you want to hang out and talk to each other and talk to the speaker. So, Okay, so um, just a little intro now for Todd, which I'm really thrilled to give. I've known Todd for a number of years. It's terrific to have him speak here at CMSW. Todd got his PhD in 2010 from Ohio University. His supervisor was a friend of CMS, friend of the game lab Mia Consalvo, who many of you know and I think uh, know her work, a really terrific scholar in the field of computer games. And his dissertation was on fighting games, performativity, and social gameplay. So we're getting a nice link, I think, to some of that that early work. Todd has been here at MIT since 2010, uh, post-op with Gambit, which is now the game lab. So he's, he's been around here at MIT for a while and knows a little bit about the institution, has taught a number of classes in CMS, which you've just heard a little bit about, over the years, um, and has done really some fantastic work uh, also sort of developing uh, games alongside our students. So in fact, he was the lead researcher and product owner for a game some of you may know called A Closed World which was an Indiecade finalist in 2012. It's gotten tremendous critical acclaim, really interesting piece of work done with an eye on research and an eye on pedagogy and, and sort of working with students with that. He's done really fantastic work over the years on not only fighting games, but broader thematics in computer game studies, everything from queer representation in games, aesthetics in games, and fan engagement. And I encourage you to Google him, take a look at his website, and you can find some of the fantastic work that he's been doing today, he's presenting on this extensive work he's done, qualitative work in the fighting game community, um, which is the subject of his forthcoming book from Routledge. And big congrats on having a book coming out soon. That'll be out in early 20. 20-
1: <laughs> Don't clap until you read it. No no, no, no.
0: Anything he says a disclaimer. Just forget about it. And listen to what I'm saying. <laughs> Great
1: work, That's though. also probably a good advice, yeah. And
0: it's, uh, 2014, that's coming out, and that's entitled The Culture of Digital Fighting Games, Performance and Practice. So um, just on a little bit of a more personal note, I want to say, as I said, I've met, known Todd for a while, and i met him, I think, a number of years ago at maybe the Association of Internet Researchers, where I heard him presenting some of his early work on this stuff and on game culture, and was really struck with the care, the critical nuance he brought to things. As many of you know... Esports and professional, competitive, public play of games is really, we're in this kind of crazy boom cycle. Todd has really done some of the earliest most foundational work in that area, so I'm thrilled to have him here, thrilled that it's going to be coming out in book form and I'm really looking forward to this talk. So, I'll turn it over to Todd.
1: What up? Uh, Probably should not have started my colloquium talk at the the institute with what up. Um, So, I really just want to start this with um, where everything started Uh, and this short little video should tell you a lot. Madness. Um, so, I'm, uh, I'm not going to go back to that slide because I think I'll start playing again and that was loud. Um, how many of you have ever played a Street Fighter game or a Mortal Kombat game, Soul Calibur game? Not, look at the same hands all the time. Uh, Smash Brothers? Yeah, same people. All right, fine. So the other five of you, sorry. Uh, so that, that was um, Daga Umahara, who's a very famous Japanese competitive fighting game player, probably the biggest recognizable competitive name in the business, uh, playing against Justin Wong, who's probably a, one of the other really huge names. That was at EVO, which is a fighting game tournament I'll talk a little bit about more in a second. In 2004, you'll notice it was kind of a ghetto setup, right? Like, it's just a table and a TV and a PlayStation. Um, they were playing Street Fighter 3, and what happened was uh, Justin, who's kind of the the rival, um, was fighting against Dago. Justin was playing uh, the lady character Chun Lee. Dago was playing uh, the guy in white, um, Ken. And really, that thing he did—did did you see where uh, Ken kind of flashes blue, and the crowd started going, "Ah, right!" That was a really strict, incredibly technical a uh, system called parrying from Street Fighter 3 that takes cyborg ninja reflexes to pull off. Like Normal humans look at that and go, wow. Um, and honestly, I saw that video maybe 2006. And I looked at it and I had been a lifetime, I'd played fighting games, but I didn't replay against people. I pretty much only played against the computer. And I saw that and went, what is going on? Um, and as I found out, when I started interviewing fighting game players, a lot of them also saw that specific video and went, what is going on? Uh, so a lot of the impetus for this research actually started with that video and me wondering, what, what is going on in this experience with fighting games that I didn't have? Um, a little more background for the study. So when I was a kid, I lived in Waterbury, uh, I lived near Waterbury, Connecticut. I was maybe, this was 1991, so I was 11, 12 years old. Um... And they had a Street Fighter II cabinet in a drugstore in the mall, and I was playing against the computer. And uh, a teenager walked up and challenged me, which if you've ever played an arcade game, that's not usually how they go. If you're playing Pac-Man, somebody else can't put in a quarter and pick a rival Pac-Man and kill you, thus ruining your game, right? This is new. This is a big thing in the fighting game thing. So uh, he starts fighting me, and he's older than me, and he has better reflexes, and I'm kicking his ass. which, I don't, I don't know. Luck, space dust, it could have been anything. Um, so he turns to me and he goes, uh, oh, using cheesy throws, using cheesy throws, right? Uh, he was mad, because I was winning, and also I was like 10. Um, and I heard the word chinzy, I don't know why, probably because the game was really loud. Shinzy's not even a word. I'm pretty sure it might be a Pokemon. But I don't actually know what it means. <laughs> like a complete idiot. I thought he was talking about the name of the move I was using. So I look up him and go, yeah, Chinzy throws, all right, yeah. <laughs> I cannot imagine how infuriated he must have been. Um, so that's one childhood story. Uh, and one adult story uh, for players of Smash Brothers. I was a PhD student at Ohio uh, when the latest Smash Brothers for the Wii came out, Smash Brothers Brawl. And it had online play. And I love Smash Brothers. And I was so excited to play it online. And I went online and played against the same three characters out of a possible 28. Out of the same two stages out of a possible like 15. And I was like, if I see one more Ike, or snake, or fox, I'm going to kill someone. And it was just like that first video, right? I'm like, what is? why are these people playing Smash Brothers this way? Uh, So all these stories boil down to, I kind of wondered what was going on in the competitive fighting game community. And conveniently, I needed a topic for my doctoral dissertation. So, for those of you who don't know, what are fighting games? Uh, to give you a little working definition, they're games of close quarters combat, usually one-on-one. Uh, there are some games, like Smash Brothers, that are up to four versus each other, so 1v1v1v1. Um, they are usually involving characters that have specific move sets, right? They have this punch, or this kick, or this ball of fire they throw, right? And it's not free form; they have a very specific list of things they can do. Uh, their math parameters are quantified on screen, life gauges, timers, other gauges, which have increased exponentially over the life of the genre, um, and they usually allow for multiplayer competition. In fact, they are generally competitive, even against the computer. Uh, the related genre of beat-em-ups, so people have played things like Final Fight, uh, the old Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles arcade game for people who grew up the same time as me, um, those were very similar, right, have a lot of these same characteristics, but they're primarily cooperative against the computer only. Uh, not all fighting games adhere to these rules. Bushido Blade is a fighting game series by Square, the makers of Final Fantasy. They don't have uh, that math parameters quantified on screen. You don't know anything Uh, in fact they did that specifically to replicate the feeling of if you cut somebody with a sword usually they die Um, since that's the point they don't give you a life gauge you just sort of die Uh, really the standards of the genre were set by Street Fighter 2 in 91 for 2D fighters which I'll explain in a second and uh, Virtua Fighter in 93 by Sega There are these two parallel tracks of development, 2D fighters, which tend to focus on one single plane of action that moves more or less from left to right with some vertical movement. There's no moving into or out of the foreground or background. Um, 3D fighters, on the other hand, tend to have that movement around. Um, Some 2D fighters have 3D graphics, but the plane of movement is the important thing to remember there. Um, Really these games tend to be pretty much the same as the other games uh, back in the early days of Street Fighter which was made by Capcom a company called Data East made a game called Fighters History which more or less was Street Fighter 2 with the serial numbers filed off um, and Capcom sued them in the United States for uh, trademark infringement or copyright infringement sorry, uh, they lost by the way, the court thought that the two games were different enough in uh, expression that they were not exactly the same but that's kind of the, that's the, what you were looking at in the early days of fighting games. Uh, and there are slight systemic variations, adaptations, improvements that have gone on over time. But for the most part, since the 90s, these games have been pretty much the same. Uh, this is a screenshot of Street Fighter II, the old school Street Fighter II. You can kind of see what I'm talking about, right? There's Ryu on the left doing a special move. There's the timer, how many times they've won, how much life they have left, who they are if you forget. Right, um, all that match parameters is quantified. But then, but then, there we go. <laughs> this is King of Fighters 13, which came out last year. It's prettier. There's an extra gauge or two. But for the most part, are we looking at pretty much the same UI? Yeah, and in fact, gameplay-wise, there are a few differences, obviously, because they're 12 years apart or more. But uh, for the most part, same deal. This is Virtua Fighter. Uh, I think this is actually Virtua Fighter 2, but the principle is the same. Um, 3D fighters, so instead of sprites, which a lot of the old 2D fighters were based on, this is polygons, so the graphics are a little different. You can kind of see how they can move in and around that foreground, even though they're not literally doing it in a screenshot. And then here's Soul Calibur, which is somebody literally getting rigged out as we speak. Uh, To kind of talk about the theoretical frameworks that went into this, Uh, my background, besides being in media studies, is in gender and queer theory, Uh, and I was kind of taken with uh, Judith Butler's idea of performative gender. I'm going to gloss over this pretty quick, but uh, generally speaking, if you're not familiar with it, the idea of performative gender situates identity and expression of identity pretty firmly in discourse, right? In how we interact with each other socially um, and how we exist inside culture. Uh, identity is something that we have that we do, right? Uh, Judith Butler was drawing a lot on Weston Zimmerman's doing gender, which is pretty formative in that field, too. Um, So rather than something you have, something that is elemental to you that cannot be changed, uh, your identity, in her case, gender, is something that you constantly do through actions and interactions with people, and the more you continue to do the same types of actions, the more you build up a certain um, feel or expression of an identity, right? Uh, Different situations involve different performances and invoke different performances. uh, And sometimes they're resistant, sometimes they're not. um, In the sense that sometimes you can perform against the hegemony and kind of fight back. Sometimes you kind of have to accept it uh, for issues of, for example passing or survival or lots of other reasons that you would want to flow with the hegemonic discourse performance rather than against. Um, there's a lot of work, this is just two examples uh, of gameplay as performance, but there really wasn't much research linking identity performance in play. And what I really took from from Butler's approach was the idea that um, do these players uh, express their membership in this subculture and their sense of selves as members of this subculture through play. Right? Um, if play is an act that we do socially and discursively, beyond just the actual literal controlling of the game, right, it takes place in certain social frameworks, then how do these ways of playing influence how people understand themselves, especially as fans of fighting games? Uh... And how do they form connections? Right? How do they, how do they gel as a community? And how does what they, what they do, and how they form those communities tell us about the role of games and culture? Uh, so I did an ethnographic exploration of the fighting game culture. To read off the slide, um, I mostly got my data in two ways. I went to Evo in 2009. Evo, or the Evolution Championship Series, is a very large fighting game tournament. Um, it's about a, a decade and a Half old. Originally, it was at arcades randomly across the country. Now it's always in Las Vegas at a different hotel every time. Um, and in fact, it has, uh, to kind of branch a little bit into TL's field of research, it is increasingly a live stream event in that it is not as necessary to attend it in person as a spectator. Uh, it is primarily kind of sent out through things like Twitch TV, lots of live streaming venues. Um, and then I based. A set of interview questions uh, somewhat on research into the community and somewhat on my observations that i made at evo over three days uh and recruited members of the fighting game community to ask kind of more in-depth questions about what i had seen i will tell you it was very difficult to um to get interview respondents for a number of reasons related to the culture One is that I asked in 2009, which is when Street Fighter IV came out, the first new Street Fighter game in over a decade at that point. Um, And many of the communities that I went to, such as Shoryukin.com, which is a huge fighting game site with a very large community and forum, um, they had a sudden influx of members, uh, not all of whom were members that that community wanted, and many of whom were journalists that the community was wary of. I was perceived as both. Um, and so there was a lot of resistance. I had, uh, I as <laughs> to to give one short example how many of you have filled out an IRB, or I guess CUIs here on campus, um, when you do sort of ethnographic research, you're often saying, I, I'll, keep your, uh, I'll keep your results confidential, right? I won't, share them, I won't share your real name with people. And I had one person respond. And that's sort of default when I sent out my, reporting, my recruiting materials, rather. That was just a thing you mentioned that you would do. And I had someone respond in a forum thread, if I'm not going to get credit for talking to you, why should I? <laughs> uh, I didn't have a sensible response to that, by the way. I was like, "Well, I can't use your name if you want. I, it's just a thing." Uh, I didn't interview that guy, as you can probably tell. Um, so yeah, I just I just wanted to say upfront a little. You learn a little bit about the culture and how difficult it is to get people to talk to you sometimes. Uh, I want to talk about three semantic areas today. There's a lot more than this in my work. I would suggest um, I'm sure the MIT library will have it when it comes out, but if you really are interested in this, read the book. There's a whole section on um, online communities and social gameplay that I kind of leave out in this talk. Uh, But generally I wanted to talk about three things. Um, How the arcade has influenced fighting game culture. Um, The very practice of play and how what people do and how they think of play in a normative way affects their identity. Uh, Creation and definitely the intersectional aspects of being a fighting gamer, specifically ethnicity and gender, Um, although there there are also class and other related issues in there. So uh, the arcade is... How many people here have ever been to an arcade in their lifetime? How many people can name an arcade that isn't Fun Spot that's within 100 miles of Boston? Yeah, that's what I thought. Because that space is dying. Oh, is there one? The pinball Wizard Arcade. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> What's there? Is it just pinball? No, there are uh, old arcades. Oh. Oh, so like Centipede and Crystal crystal castles with that ball? Yeah, anybody born after like 1990 is like, I don't, what are you, whatever. Um, arcades were public places to play video games uh, in the 80s and 90s they're kind of dying out slash have died out in the united states for the most part as public spaces to play games um partially because we've moved culturally away from that sort of i'm doing this big thing in public while well, people watch a scenario at least in terms of gameplay sort of <laughs> now we're watching them online it's much less creepy um, <laughs> but also the fact that home consoles came out when i was a kid you had the atari 2600 And lots of arcade games came out for the Atari 2600, but they looked awful, right? You were like, wow, this isn't Pac-Man. That's just a yellow blob doing this. Uh, But as home consoles improved technologically and arcade-perfect ports became a possibility with things like the Super Nintendo and the PlayStation, PlayStation 2, et cetera, um, increasingly, play moved out of arcades and into the home. Uh, They were kind of an anarchic social space, which I'll talk to in a second, uh, to kind of the Family Fun Center, which I would classify something like the Pinball Arcade as, from the way you've described it, and definitely the Fun Spot kind of arcade museum up in New Hampshire. Uh, however, the arcade is still a thing in Asia, especially in Japan, which is another topic we'll come back to. Um, this is a picture of Chinatown Fair, which was a very famous arcade in New York City. This is pre-redo uh, Chinatown Fair, closed down, rebuilt itself, and then opened it up again a few years ago. Uh, the old Chinatown Fair, well, to look at the picture, dark, little claustrophobic feeling, three fighting game machines in a row, and these are certainly not the only ones in the building, right? Uh, I don't have a picture of the new Chinatown Fair, but it's brightly lit. It's colored. There's more space. There's less Street Fighter and more skee-ball. Um, to quote... A fighting game fan who came to see the new Chinatown Fair, he walked in the building, saw it, turned around, left, and said it's a trap, and then walked away. Um, So that kind of gives you some context for how they felt about that situation. Um, The owner really kind of called the change economically motivated. He didn't feel that the old model of arcade that uh, old Chinatown Fair represented was viable anymore. It wasn't a thing that he could do. People would come to this kind of like skee-ball space, especially family-friendly ski ball ball space. The old arcade was mostly a teenager's world, um, and it was not friendly to little kids. So I just wanted to give Chinatown Fair as an example of uh, kind of how the arcades moved out, but also a a tiny picture of what the arcade that fighting game fans want to go back to um, was like. Uh... One way in which they kind of echo the arcade now is in the arcade stick or fight stick, which is more or less ubiquitous in the fighting game community. When I was at Evo, anybody who was there to compete at all had one. Period. That was in 2009, mind. But uh, everyone I talked to uh, when I did interviews had an arcade stick. Um, For the most part, they're just... There, they're a thing that you have if you're doing this activity. There are some exceptions, and those people tend to be folk heroes. At Evo a couple years ago, there was a player named Vance Wu who goes by the name Van Geef. He played Street Fighter IV on a default kind of you guys know Xbox controller pads, PlayStation pads, right? He played on one of those and beat Justin Wong, who's you know a very famous, very skilled player. So he was kind of using a character that was considered weak. So he was kind of like the folk hero um he has like five facebook pages called the iron van geef um very popular with the fans uh but they really kind of echo the arcade cabinet in a way that i'll show you in a second and they're not just about the arcade space for example if you can kind of envision me um holding a 360 pad right You kind of do this with your hands. Most of the motion you make on buttons and with the stick is with these, which do not articulate very well for fine motion, right? Now, take a look at an arcade stick. These are built to be in front of you. You hold the ball of the stick with your left hand, which you can then move with your wrist and whole arm. So you have a much wider range of motion. And instead of pressing buttons with your thumb, and especially if you need to press multiple buttons at the same time, you have your fingers resting on this row of three buttons and then three buttons. right? So it's much, there's simply a physical advantage to using an arcade stick. Um, one that a lot of players expressed a need to get used to over time. right? That they had to adapt to using an arcade stick. Uh, they come in all different flavors. There's a decorated one on the left. You kind of can't see it because the guy's got his stuff resting on it, but it's a picture of Street Fighter 4 characters on top of it. Whereas this, I don't even know. right? <laughs> you got... Uh, the cord to plug it into the computer otherwise it's just wood and metal right, completely unadorned Um, this is someone's homemade Street Fighter cabinet uh, that plays emulated versions um, that I also saw, these pictures are all from Evo 2009 that I took by the way Uh, so you know, somebody made that in their garage right, somebody (laughs) actually constructed this, so I think that's also kind of a cool example Um, I'm going to show very briefly this video or parts of it which are about a fight stick that lights up with LEDs when you press stuff. Uh, I want to tell you, tactically, gameplay-wise, this has no use. In fact, it can work against you, because the person playing near you can see what you're pressing if stuff lights up. Right? Um, This is pretty much purely cosmetic, but this is the sort of thing that people who make sticks, and there are crafters, known, well-known crafters and respected people who put this stuff together from very specific lists of parts. Uh, And then there's this. Somebody made an arcade stick out of a Rubbermaid container. <laughs> it works. There's a story about it on the internet. Like, just Google fight stick Rubbermaid. There it is. It works. Would you want to use it? Probably not. I mean, for starters, it's only got four buttons, which is kind of a problem. But I mean, that's the other end of that spectrum, right? You've got people making glowy sticks that press up, light up when you press them, and then you've got a sandwich container. Um, so arcade sticks are basically part of creating a comfortable environment, right? That physical, uh, reducing the amount of of problems that you have from doing the actual physical control of the game, right? Uh, they're also an emblem. They can show your fandom. They can show your likes and dislikes, your interests. Uh, you could also read something similar by Bart Simon on case mods if you're interested in that field. Um, Bart really kind of talks about how case mods can be cosmetic, they can be kind of emblematic, but they're always useful. They're always functional, right? They have to be functional first, and then they can be cute and pretty and interesting. Um, that rubber main container stick is kind of, if it didn't work, it's art, maybe? I don't know. Uh, I don't know from art. But if it works, it's an interesting experiment, right? So it has to be functional first, interesting second. Uh, they're also a membership badge simply having one tells people that you take this interest seriously right and conversely not having one is an emblem that you're a dilettante or an amateur or somebody who's just vaguely interested right Uh, so they kind of echo the arcade in structure they're kind of the physical apparatus of the arcade reproduced in a portable self-identifying way but arcades are also acculturating Uh, All of the players I spoke to, except for two or three, started in the arcade. Or if not in an arcade, then a similar space. Uh, Do people remember kind of stopping at convenience stores or pizza parlors and seeing Street Fighter 2 cabinets, right? Did you ever, like, I really want to buy a soda, but like the 15 people playing Street Fighter are in front of the cabinet, and that's kind of making it difficult, right? Like, that was an experience I had in the 7-Eleven once. (laughs) And for older players, that was their only option, right? When I was 10, there was no home version of Street Fighter. It was play it in this drugstore, or arcade, or wherever, or nothing, right? There was no alternative option. And not all players start serious. Uh, A lot of people, in fact, start the other way around. They think fighting games are interesting, but they're not like, I'm gonna be the best there ever was. They just kind of go and play. Uh, Some fighting game fans told me about House Rules that they would play in arcades, right, that were about fairness um, and not being cheap, which I'll discuss a little bit later, but uh, they were things that they were like, yeah, but house rules aren't really good for competition, so when I learned the real way to play from people at other arcades, that was when I really got serious about fighting games, right, so you're not really playing them if you're like, well, don't use throws, bro, throws are cheap, right? That's an emblem that you're, again, a diltant or somebody who's vaguely interested. In. They're more interested in winning than playing, which is important to them, too. Uh, so, yeah, the arcade is kind of a space where you can meet other people who play. You see them play in a particular way. It might strike your interest, and then through them, you hear about online forums or other players, and then that kind of draws you into this community that plays in a very certain way and defines themselves by the way that they play, right? Um, It's kind of that introduction to norms. Playing in person is very important to the fighting game culture, which is kind of why Evo happens, right? Uh, We have online capable consoles nowadays. You could probably do an entire fighting game tournament online if you really wanted to and had some way to adjudicate. But instead, they go to Vegas every year. Uh, And not just Vegas. We had a fighting game tournament here earlier this year, four buildings away, right? Pretty well attended, I think, for the size of the Boston metro area. Uh, They happen all the time. Right? So why would people meet up? Why would they go through the social and monetary cost of meeting up in person? Because they value it really highly. Uh, and a lot of that comes from the feeling of playing with an in-person audience against a person next to you in the arcade. Uh, and really there's kind of a competition between spaces. Right, Like, this is my home arcade, and you just came in and you beat all the guys. It's very, um, I hate to use the Japanese anime-style reference, but kind of you're the last fighter at the dojo and someone has come and they beat your master, the Black Belt, and now you must defeat him to save the honor of your arcade. That is a scenario that people describe to me about arcades, right? And finally, Evo itself is really an arcade space. It started in the arcades. It was people who were playing Street Fighter on arcade machines who met up over BBSs, remember those, Um, when you needed a phone to get on the internet, uh... They were really like arranged by those players in Los Angeles, and San Francisco, New York City. Um, eventually, the event became so big that there would not be enough arcade machines in the nation for all of them to play on. And so that, combined with consoles finally having at-home uh, playable versions that were similar, um, moved it into an arcade, if less for an arcade space, more of a console space. But... Uh, on the other hand, Seth Killian, who used to work for Capcom as a uh, community director, now works at uh, Sony Santa Monica, I believe. A uh, very famous fighting game player, um, kind of one of the big names in the culture, really said that they're not trying to duplicate the arcade, but to reproduce the feel of the arcade. Uh, and that is a thing that happened. A lot of the arcade practices that I talked about, the watching in person, the I got next, where you put your quarter up on the machine to show that you're going to play next, um... All those other things were really in ex- in extant at EVO. And, uh, for example, they were demoing Tatsunoko versus Capcom, which was a not-out game at the time. And I was watching people play, um, thinking I was being a good ethnographer. I was watching people play, and a guy would turn to me and go, and he had a controller and there was another one for the station but it was just him playing by himself and he kept trying to give me the other controller and you know my my inner social scientist was going no you'll contaminate the data don't play with him just say you're there to watch Um, in retrospect don't pick up the controller be a good ethnographer participate in the community um But that was also kind of like a playing by yourself, not a thing, right? And there was a crowd of people watching and cheering and kind of getting into the lines. So that arcade feel really persisted, even in these non-official, non-tournament, kind of informal, even marketing spaces that were happening at EVO. Uh, And also really a lot of current EVO participants are just too young for the arcade to be salient, right? Like it's, it's disappearing in the US. Uh, To shift gears a little bit, I want to talk about the uh, practice of play and specifically normative play, um, which is really, I think, where code and the execution of play and discourse and social interaction between players kind of meet. Um, Normative ideas really tell us, you know, what people approve of tells us what they value. What they disapprove of tells us what they value. And I think knowing what people value in terms of play tells us a lot about how they approach playing games in general and these games in specific. And particularly the, the idea of fairness and balance is really important to fighting game players. Um, kind of the notion that uh, uh, the games need to be perfect on a play, level playing field, right? Uh, so the ideal match is really, they kind of approve of play that's dramatic and skillful, right? There's gotta be tension and drama. They wanna see people execute techniques and combinations and maneuvers um, with skill, right? That's kind of why it's interesting to watch and conversely, any match where there's no drama uh, is just not interesting. Right? If somebody just pounds the other guy and the other guy doesn't have a chance uh, and I do say guy purposefully, I'll get to that in a bit, um, if they just get ridiculously beat then it's not interesting to the crowds in the sense that uh, there's no drama, there's no tension. Um, and actually, winning and losing is less important than play to this community. The, the execution of skillful play is less important than any individual being a winner or loser. Uh, to give you an example of this from Japanese arcade culture, there's a practice where if you're playing against another person in the arcade and you beat them on the first round, which are usually a best of three, uh, you have to let them win on the second round. It's considered polite to let that other person win. And if you watch match videos of Japanese fighting games, uh, search for the term RANBAT, R-A-N-B-A-T, uh, on YouTube, you'll notice it happen, right? One person will win one round, other person wins the other round, and then the first person comes back and wins the third round. Of course, the best moments are when this person who was allowed to win in the second round comes back and wins in the third round. So Roof for the Underdog, it's me. Uh, so kind of, you know, look at that video from the beginning of the presentation, right? When did the crowd lose it? When the drama kicked up, when Daigo pulled out this you-must-be-a-robot-to-have-these-reflexes maneuver that people didn't even think was possible, and then turns around to win at the jaws of defeat. right? So much drama, and tension, and skillful execution. And I use that as an example, but it showed up all the time in the games that I observed at EVO. Uh, but then, there's play that people don't like. Uh, for example... The woman on the left is a character named Hildy from Soul Calibur 4. Uh, So in 3D games, there's a victory by ring out, where usually the stage that you fight in has a boundary, an outer boundary, and no matter how much health or vitality somebody has, if you knock them out of the ring, they lose. Um, It's kind of a contentious point between 2D and 3D fans, in fact, Uh, but Hildy has a set of moves that let her ring people out from really far away, that's extremely powerful. And when she was used in the Soul Calibur Finals of Evo 2009, the crowd booed her. The announcers booed her. Um, even to the point where somebody who had been playing in an arcade stick suddenly switched to a pad, uh, and I asked somebody sitting next to me why the crowd was suddenly booing, and he said because pads make it easier to do Hildy's ring out combo, so he's probably switching to Hildy, which he did so I just wanted to show you this combination very quickly yeah, that's it that was maybe five seconds of moves that other person was defenseless, off they go right Uh, another example is Meta Knight who's from Super Smash Bros. Brawl how many people just made a face when I brought him up (laughs) at least one so uh, he's considered to be extremely powerful overall and the Smash community, the competitive Smash community is kind of tearing itself apart over do we ban him at tournaments because he's too powerful or do we let people play and kind of allow emergent play to fight back against his powerfulness Um, Meta Knight and Hildy are considered broken uh, or cheap. Cheap in this term tends to mean high reward, low risk, right? Um, consider that fighting games are a lot like fencing. Certain moves leave you open to, uh, to counterattack. Technically speaking, usually the stronger a move is, the more open you are. So you have to choose very specific timing using it. A cheap move typically has high payoff for very low risk, Right? or a broken character where they're high-powered with no drawbacks, or they're perceived as not operating inside the framework of the game's balance as the players see it. So the game is therefore not working as intended, and thus broken. Um, And the disapproval that these, these characters get kind of highlights this intense focus on balance and fairness, right? These characters are booed, literally booed, by an entire room because they were perceived as ruining kind of those character, that characteristics of the ideal match, right? Like, okay, well, if it's just going to be perfect, then why are we going to watch? Uh, so this idea of the level playing field is really important, and if you've read um, Kelwa, his char- characterizing games as Agon, Alea, Mimicry, and uh, Illings, I can never pronounce that word, um, he, these games are really kind of defined as agon, right? Rule-bounded competition, where the most important thing is determining who has the greatest level of skill, and this focus on balance or fairness is about eliminating intervening variables that might produce a win that isn't about skill. right? We've um, got Smash Brothers, for example, uh, where there's lots of items, I'll get to that in a second, and stages that have lots of outside influences, and the idea is reducing the outside influences cuts down on how many wins are not attributable to skill uh so that's where that fox only final destination no items thing comes from competitive smash players are like this one character in this one stage and no items produces the perfect situation where we can find out who has the greater skill Um, and as one smash player i interviewed told me it's about determining who has the best skill not who has the horseshoe in their back pocket right who has the best luck um there's been a lot of work, well, some work on smashers, and definitely uh, Mikhail's done some work on this in the smash group in Sweden, yeah? Um, where there was this community of casual smashers who were like, let's leave on items, let's play for fun, right? Uh, well, okay, let's step away from that damaged word fun when it comes to video games. But, you know, let's play with items, let's kind of be crazy and wild and social. And then anti-smash, or no, I think I reversed those, didn't I? Anti-smashers are the one who, well, whatever. There are two camps: casual, who are fine with leaving items on, and hardcore, who are all about that skill test. And uh, I just wanted to show you a little bit of what a Smash Brothers game with items on and random lasers. And I guess that's a landmine. Uh, you know, that's a very different situation than that Street Fighter play that I showed you at the beginning of the beginning of the talk, right? Um, so finally, I want to talk a bit about uh, ethnicity, gender, class, more time of intersexuality or inter- intersectionality Ha! Very different topics by the way um, So in truth the fighting game community in terms of ethnicity national background is very diverse, uh, much more so than a lot of other gaming subcultures are uh, When I was at Evo there were lots of people of color um, which is not an experience I've had in other gaming meetups, gaming spaces, compare it to PAX, which is overwhelmingly white. Having been twice and never again. Uh, yeah, just and you know, this idea of national and regional identification is actually pretty important. Fighting game players, you've got regional, regional kind of uh, rivalries, right? Like North California and South California. Sorry, NorCal and Cal. Sorry. Uh, very huge rivalry going back to like the very beginnings of arcade Street Fighter tournament play. Right, uh, East Coast versus West Coast. U.S. versus Japan. Um, you know, Definitely these kind of uh, national, regional identities are very important. Um, but a really key rhetoric in the fighting game community is inclusion. Right? We want more people to play. We want to grow the hobby. We want to grow the community. Uh, and sometimes these intersectional moments get blinded by adherence to that rhetoric, I think. Uh, I'm just going to read this story out. This is pretty much a direct poll from the book. So um, I interviewed some of this. Jeff is not his real name, uh, but this is one of my interviewees. And I asked, uh, I just don't have the experience playing. I don't have the reflexes, but that's neither here nor there. And he says, "You don't have Asian hands," and I was like, "Is that a is that a thing?" He said, yeah, you don't have Asian hands. I've certainly been upset that I'm not Asian at certain points. When I just can't hit a move, I'll throw up my hands going, ah, if only I could have Asian hands. And I've heard other people say it too, because you see the Korean players and the Japanese players, and they're just like, whatever, got it first try. And it's like, ah, give me your fingers. The Japanese mystique and the Asian mystique, by extension, is kind of a thing in the fighting in community. And there's this very dual perception of Japan and Asia in general, um, and Korea kind of growing, definitely because of its uh, involvement in esports, right, which is a very parallel track to the fighting in community right now. Uh, there's this very um, Orientalist in the Said way. Um, vision of of Asian players is naturally better, right? They come from this promised nirvana, Arcadia, if you will, of arcades (laughs) Um, where there's lots of arcades and there's lots of strong competition everywhere. And, you know, oh, awesome, I'm going to fight against all these people and they really know what they're doing and I'm going to get better, right? So uh, Japanese players are just naturally better. Uh, On the other hand, there's also this really weird construction of them as a rival nation, probably doing, doing... Owing to the fact (laughs) that a lot of the best fighting game players happen to be Asian, probably for many of the kind of contextual reasons they're talking about. This idea that Japan does have more arcades and there is a very strong competitive culture does result in people that have a high level of play. Um, You'll notice if you ask Ben, who's sitting on the way back, about the difference between the way um, Korean League of Legends teams train compared to American League of Legends teams, there's a different ethos and a different approach, probably in many ways um, encouraged by the different attitude towards competitive sports in Asian culture, where I think it's much more seen. It has a greater degree of legitimacy, although, of course, that's growing in the U.S. too. Um, but, you know, it's difficult to say. But Daigu Mahara, who's kind of the the public face of being awesome at fighting games is Japanese, and everyone kind of really w- wants to beat him, right? Because in so doing, like you've defeated the god of the fighting games, right? It's like if he's the last boss, and you win, uh, you know. And there's also the case of, um, so the street, the sorry, Soul Calibur four finals at Evo in 2009. One of the competitors was named Malik. I think that's actually just his handle, not his real name. Um, And he was French. In fact, Soul Calibur is very... Competitive Soul Calibur is very big in France. And um, he was winning. He was on his way towards winning the whole competition. And he was... um, So before him, we had... uh, He was fighting someone who was playing a non-Hildi character. And the crowd was going, USA, USA, rooting for his opponent. Right? But Malik wins, he moves on and then fights a Hildi player, and then the crowd starts going, "Malik, Malik! Malik!" So their identification as American fans who want the USA to win is less strong than their desire for a Hildi player not to win, which I thought was awesome, by the way. And Malik went, to want, went on to win, you know so that was pretty good. Uh, yeah, so there's kind of this weird construction, right, like they're, they're awesome, they're this foreign mystique, they're just naturally better, but if we defeat them, we get a prize, you know, it's just very strange. Uh, and fighting games and gender is, is a very thorny topic that's very similar, uh, as with many gaming communities, the fighting game community is overwhelmingly male. Um, when I went to Evo, I think I saw, how to describe this... I saw no women who were playing in actual tournament games in 2009. I saw some women who were carrying arcade sticks. So I I, I assume, because that arcade stick is such a badge, I assume they were there to compete. Um, But I didn't see any of them compete. But I did run into a lot of um, girlfriends, mothers, wives, sisters, who were there to support people who were competing, oftentimes from foreign countries. I met a family from Thailand who flew over, all of them, from Thailand. To support their son who was in the tournament so that's a deal Uh, and like i said this community has a strong level of inclusion right or that's the rhetoric the more serious players you have the more competition there is the more competition there is the better everyone's play becomes and so the level of competition and remember that moment of competition and skillful execution is so important to them the more competition there is the better everyone is, right? So more is better, as long as they, as long as they play inside this framework that we've defined for ourselves, right? Uh, and so the community has a really strong belief in meritocracy because of that, right? Related to balance, if the only thing that's important is skill, then the only thing that should matter is skill, right? And so they assume that there is the kind of this meritocratic, the cream will rise, in the sense that if you have skill, it doesn't matter if you're a woman or have a queer identity or what ethnicity you are or class or whatever, if you have skill you will rise to the top well that belief is kind of blinding them to systemic elements that are keeping women in particular from playing these games um Women players are really the most visible example of this, but definitely this happens with queer players too. Not so much that I saw with ethnicity, because as I said, it's a very diverse community, but that doesn't mean that there are not ethnic issues. For example, the whole deal of Asians that I just talked about. Um, FGC spaces are really hostile to women, and those women might not feel... Even women who have this level of skill that the community says would make them succeed might not be comfortable in those faces, and so they become invisible, right? It doesn't matter how great your skill is if you're afraid to be around these people for any of a a variety of emotional or physical safety reasons, for example. Uh, Cross Assault is a really big example of this. It was a live-streamed kind of reality show um, that was to promote Street Fighter Cross Tech in a game that came out very recently. Uh, it had Team Street Fighter and Team Tekken, two teams of five players competing in this game to see who wins. Uh, Team Tekken's coach, Eric Spectanian sexually harassed one of his uh, women teammates um, on the air, repeatedly, uh, with very little to no pushback from others. I mean, there were a few um, journalists and people who work in the streaming industry who did some pushback, but for the most part, it went pretty much unchallenged. And I want to I point out, this is not an idiosyncratic misogynist working on his own. right? He was in many ways responding to live stream chat from fighting game fans who encouraged him to do some of the things that he did. Um, and really, Miranda eventually became so fed up and so uncomfortable, she threw a match to leave the show. Uh, I wanted to show you a very small clip. This is the least trigger warning necessary, yet still unsettling vision of something Eris did to her. It's pretty safe, but I want to warn you ahead of time it is a little uncomfortable. Oh no. Or maybe it just won't play. That'll happen too. I do, but it goes so fast. The next time you make a mistake like that, I'm going to smell you. Real close, too. I'm gonna do
2: it for your boyfriend. Shout out to your boyfriend. Don't say that. What's his name? I'm gonna say his name while I'm smelling you. Don't say that.
1: Your girlfriend smells good, Nathan. Uncomfortable. And you can kind of see in this upper right hand corner that figure, but Miranda's on the left. That figure behind her is Eris, right? So he's inside her personal space bubble. This is not a thing he's saying from across the room. Not that that would make it any better, but I mean, it does kind of add to that. Uh, so, <laughs> I wanted to point these two headlines out. They're by Tom Cannon, who's one of the founders of Evo and showreuken.com. On the 29th of February 2012, he writes this blog post with this title, Back to Basics, Getting Beyond the Drama, which was about going, no, the fighting game community is awesome. This is just a couple isolated people. We really need to remember how good we are as a community and focus on the good things, right? February 29th. The next day... March 1st, 2012, he makes a post with this headline, Hurtful Speech, Time to Take a Good Look in the Mirror, in which he calls the fighting game community to the mat, because between those two posts, two commentators at a fight night were making fun of that whole cross-assault harassment thing on the air. Um, To the credit of the people that they were working for, they were then removed from the invite list for any future events, which was nice. Um, But yeah, 24 hours, right, to go from no, we can't, we need, not, can't get mired down in drama to really guys, what are you doing, right? Uh, I think the swiftness of that says a lot. Uh, even more more stories about spaces is hostile to women so a CG who's a woman, uh, woman fighting game player who goes by Burn Your Bra for the record I interviewed her and she, th- she has the best story she says everyone thinks that I picked this name because I'm a hardcore feminist and the truth is it's just an old hotmail address because my Xbox tag that I wanted was taken and now you know why she goes by Burn Your Bra um, she was interviewed about her experiences as a woman in the fighting game community and a woman of color in the fighting game community, which I think is really important, she kind of talked about how men in the fighting game community, in particular, kind of combine the mystique of Asians in the culture with their treatment of women to to foreground pretty Asian girls who play. Um, and so she gets a lot of racially oriented and gender oriented comments thrown her way that she doesn't always observe sent to other people. Um, uh, there's much more about that interview in the book. Uh, But also, Maddie Myers, who is a Boston-area journalist, uh, went to fight nights, which are small meetups at stores and places um, in a local area where people go to train, right? They're your chance to play against other people and improve and test strategies. Uh, She went to a number of those. And that story is, uh, if you search for Maddie Myers' fight night on Google, you can find the story at the archives of the Phoenix, I believe. She's in the room, sorry. Can, Can you still find it out there? Yeah. Uh, I I recommend reading it, not if you've had a really bad day (laughs) or if you're like, wow, I think humanity is awesome, I'm going to go donate to a charity. Um, Well, okay, then read it if you want to save money because you will then lose all faith you've ever had in people ever. Um, Just the way that she was treated at those fight nights is terrible. Very condescending. Very kind of, if you're familiar with the term mansplaining, there's there's a degree of mansplaining going on in that scenario. Um, But it's not an uncomplicated issue. In 2010, the organizers of EVO wanted to have a women's invitational, uh, which they kind of went to the community to ask what they thought about it. And a lot of the discussion around it centered on um, not wanting to sideline women players into a ghetto space, right? Where if you want to compete, you can only compete in the women's tournament. Um, TL's book on esports actually has a good breakdown of this kind of division between dividing women off for their own protection and how that creates very damaging rhetorics in terms of not just esports but also physical sports as well where it has a very long history um but a lot of the, there were women who responded saying i don't want to be in that ghetto you know i they kind of embrace the uh the ideal part of that meritocratic philosophy without all the baggage right like I don't want to be in a space where it's about me being a woman. I just want my skill to speak for itself, right? So it's not an uncomplicated issue. That meritocratic sword cuts both ways. Uh, So kind of to wrap this up, because I'm five minutes over... uh, Fighting in culture kind of reinforces the idea that player identity is a, conf, uh, a confluence of a lot of factors. There's the, uh, the historical social context of play, right? The arcades and playing at home and fight nights and tournaments and what it borrows from um, physical sports in much the same way esports does. Uh, social norms and normative play, right? These are people who arrange their social play practices around a certain adherence to a very particular style of play. If you've read lots of MMO works on um, Raiders, It's a very similar philosophy, right? Christopher Paul wrote something really great about a WoW community called Elitist Jerks, which is about uh, theory crafters and how they have a very demonstrable impact on WoW as a culture and a game, just by the way that they adhere to a certain method of practice, right? Uh, Collective knowledge production, I didn't really get to get into this today, but these forums have a very central role in distributing this play practice that is at the center of their identity, in creating new information and distributing that information, right? Um, Intersectional influences, gender and ethnicity, things I just talked about, class, right? Fighting games tend to be a console-related activity. Consoles are not cheap, but they're cheaper than a new computer in many cases. Uh, Betsy DeSalvo, who is at Georgia Tech, has done some work on how... um, Urban, urban men of color gravitate towards consoles because cheaper, easier to get secondhand, and not seen as being participating in kind of this egghead computer culture right uh, and you know definitely the material influences of technology arcade sticks um, monitors, people don't play online because lag influences, remember skill is the only important thing lag is noise that gets in the way of determining who has the most skill uh and really, I kind of got this vision of the fighting game culture. They're so energetic. They're passionate. They're, it's messy, right? There's a lot of problematic elements, but they really have a lot of verve and drive. Um, and I, I really appreciate that about them. Uh, but they also really have some complicated issues to work out about exclusivity and inclusivity. Uh, Their relationship to eSports and competitive professional gaming is very thorny. Uh, Fighting games have been part of that, but at the same time, a lot of people in the fighting game community feel that eSports is a sanitized, commodified version of competitive sports that they don't want to be part of because they have this history of arcades and messiness and trash talk and all of this other stuff. Not to say that trash talk and such things aren't a a part of eSports culture, but Uh, it takes on a whole new level in the fighting game culture. Um, That quote, fighting games without sexual harassment is just StarCraft. Uh, One, if you've ever played StarCraft, that's a belly laugh right there. But that was Eris Bactanians responding to someone asking, can't I have fighting games without sexual harassment? And his answer was no right and he says starcraft to invoke this sanitized cleaned up image of esports that a lot of people in that fighting game community have right we don't want to be starcraft we want to be messy we want to have some sexual harassment we want to throw around ethnic slurs sometimes right so they're kind of struggling between this idea of growing and in inclusivity and wanting more people to play but they constantly constantly need people to do it on their terms with very little flexibility and I think that kind of resolving that struggle and the things that it, that it means for them, especially this idea of wagon circling, right, uh, it's very evident in their reaction to the games press. Uh, whenever anything bad is said, kind of that blog post I mentioned to Tom Cannons, right, oh, something bad happened, so we're going to talk about how awesome we are, right? Like, we need to defend ourselves. So I think really the future of the fighting game community is going to come down to how they articulate that conflict. You know, which route do they decide to go? Do they splinter off and have kind of two parallel tracks? Uh, do they clean up their act? I don't know. But I'm interested to see how that goes. Thank you. We have
2: some time
1: for I explained everything so well. None of you are in doubt about anything. Awesome.
0: So I have a question about how. uh, um, I don't really know too much about fighting game culture, but I'm interested in how players uh, choose their avatars and issues of like gender
2: identification.
0: So is is it do well one do they in in sort of professional fighting communities do they always play as one character or do they juggle between many one and then also. Do you see the cross-identifications gender of these players? Is it sort of like a liberating practice? Is it objectifying? Is it
1: your um, well, many fighting game players have what they call a main. In the same way that MMO players often have a main, they have one character that they play. Most play a small group, if only because um, certain fighters will have strengths and weaknesses that are either matched by or taken advantage of by other characters, right? So if you have, let's say you play Ryu in Street Fighter, not that I know that he has any weaknesses because he's the hero character, but if he's weak against a particular character and he's your main and that other person picks that character because it's their main, then you're at a disadvantage, right? So having another character that you play well is usually, so most people have a group of, of three or four, but they have one character they, they consider their favorite. In terms of cross gender identification, I don't think it actually comes up to them consciously. And for the most part, I think, uh, in the same way I'm going to keep talking about you, in the same way that um, T.L. talks about instrumental players in, um, in Rules of Play, I don't think fighting game players see their characters first in the fictional way. I think they see them as an assemblage ha, of, um, <laughs> assemblage of uh, affordances and limitations. Right. They see them as a set of special moves and attacks and characteristics first. And so, I mean, I, did, I, I asked players this question when I interviewed them, like, who's your main? How did you pick that? Because I had many of the same questions, and for the most part, people were like, I thought he looked cool. I think she's fun. I play fast characters, and she's fast. I like slow characters, and she's slow. Right, So I would love to see more work done on that, but I don't, I don't get the feeling that a lot of fighting game players think of those characters in that way I think for the most part they think of them in purely mechanical terms are you calling on people or me? whatever <laughs> um,
0: kind of, kind of a I guess thinking about also the, the characters that are out there have you seen historic or like over time a, like that change in terms of gender and the breakdown I feel like, I'm not a gamer but I feel like in most games there's always that one female character and the rest of
1: no, I, I, think, I think you're right. I think those trends are pretty static. There's usually the balanced character. Well, again, and this is kind of linking fiction to mechanics in a certain way. There's usually the balanced hero character who has no glaring strengths or weaknesses. right? There's the big slow character who uses grappling moves, which are a particular, you know, they function in a particular way in the systems. Um, but they're slow, right? They do a lot of damage. They can take a lot of punishment. But they, they aren't very quick, so getting out of the way is hard. The portrayals of those big bruisers are tend to be the same. The giant guy, right? Like following the Zangief mold from Street Fighter II of the giant uh, communist Russian. Die, wrestle bears for fun, right? Like that guy. Um, and the, the nimble characters tend to be women, usually either acrobats or ninjas. Now, I want to say I did speak to one fighter who plays a game called Arcana Heart. Uh, That is a very Japanese anime style game where all of the characters, (laughs) look at that face, Um, all of the characters in Arcana Heart are cute girls. And so uh, the big brawler guys, ladies, uh, in Arcana Heart are actually quite fascinating. One of them is an elementary school girl who rides a giant slime and the slime grows arms and throws people, right? So she's kind of, she's got this, like, very dominating, dominatrix-style personality, and she's, like, eight, because anime. And uh, so that's very different. Arcana Heart is also kind of, maybe, this goes to your question, too, kind of given the side-eye by the fighting game community. I will also say, and this goes to their opinion of Asia, too, and kind of America's real problem with Japanese pop culture, um, anime games is a growing way to define games that are too Japanese. Uh, which tend to have very strong anime art-style influences, right? So, no, I, I, I think the stereotypes and the tropes of those characters are very consistent across time, and the designs that go with them mechanically are very consistent across time. Usually, any given fighting game is kind of a long parade of nationalist stereotypes. Um... Zangief, you know the original Street Fighter 2. Guys, come on. We have the huge, burly Russian who actually dances with Gorbachev in the pre-fall of the Soviet Union games, right? He actually shows up and they do the Cossack dance. So weird. Um, you know the Japanese characters are martial artists, you know, very serious karate guys. Uh, the the Chinese character is a lady acrobat, right? Um, the Indian character is a yogi. Who breeds fire and has extendable? What does that even mean? <laughs> why, why did they do that? And pretty much every every fighting game sense that involves any sort of real world nation is just a parade of terrible, terrible Orientalist stereotypes. So yeah, does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, no.
0: I, I guess it's interesting to think about it from the. the-
1: there's a very small number of creators overall. They tend to come from the same five companies uh, or less. Although I will say a lot of those anime games that we were talking about also are very popular doujin games. Right? Uh, which are made by um, independent developers in Japan, fan developers. Right? Uh, although one of those games that was played at Evo a couple years ago started as a doujin game and people played it so much it kind of became mainstream. right? So... I'm working my way back.
0: <laughs> um, so, with with the idea of the inclusion with the, the players and actually having that um, badge that shows that you're a real hardcore player, do you find that that community of players that have the arcade sticks are, are willing and, and want to kind of include more people, or willing to teach each other, or are they like? When you compare and contrast with kind of the
2: League of
1: lightness
0: community that is very... <laughs> very, very Sorry, I should, not have,
1: I should not have busted out my witch cackle when you asked that question. Um, I think the ideal is that people bring people into the fold, right? Uh, I had some players who talked to me about their online experiences. And, you know, kind of the... Um, there was actually a great talk at the Association of Internet Researchers Conference recently where Lisa Nakamura kind of... Um, Threw down the gauntlet about our definition of, oh, people just act bad on the internet because it's anonymous and they can, right? Uh, So I would recommend looking at that. But there's kind of the stereotype that um, when it's on the internet, people are worse to each other because. We we're more able to objectify and not think of other people as people when they're just text and pictures, right? Um, and so there's a very strong belief that online play is where all the, if you'll pardon my French, assholes are. Um, but I had a few people tell me stories about how they were fighting these people, and they, the other guy was losing and like insulting them and saying terrible things, and they were just like, dude, here, here's a tip. Here's a thing you can use to beat me, right? Because the idea being... The more competitive the whole culture is, the better the com- competitions will be, the stronger the play will be, and the better that is because it's a core value. Cool. Now, do I think everyone executes that ideal equally? Probably not. Right? And actually, I was told a really great story about the Southern California fighting game community, which is so saturated that you kind of can't break in unless you're the new hotness. Right? If you're just a person who's starting out, uh, they kind of don't care. <laughs> you really have to establish yourself and do something fascinating before they'll pull you in. Now, that was one person's story. If that person maybe might be that person who wasn't the new hotness, and now they're bitter, right? So let's think about that. But, yeah, I think that's the ideal, but I don't have a good sense for how often that ideal plays out in everyday play. Um, so this is probably something more of a method question. Um, I'm interested in what if any, your ongoing relationship with this community is? <laughs> <laughs> figure out the explicitly,
2: explicitly things that are going on so I'm just curious, like, do you bring these up to them in a way that or, or work with them to address these?
1: From what I've heard, uh, those fighting game players who read my work primarily respond by going uh-uh. Um... Probably because I'm not very shy about calling them to the to the mat on things that they do wrong. Um, these tend to be anecdotal things, so I don't really know. And I know that I've, I've talked to Seth Killian before. I've met him multiple times. Once at EVO when I was there. Um, I know, actually, Maddie can probably talk, too, to how people responded to her fight night piece. No, she doesn't want to. Well, I'll tell you for her. She got a lot of harassment for calling people out. And the problem, I think that's part of the fighting game community's problems. They're very defensive. They're very resistant to change. And I think even if you say good things about them, and are interested in helping them. The minute you call out a problem, you're the enemy. And I think that makes it very hard to engage with them. I, I to be honest with you, I think my access to that community once this book comes out, if they read it, I think it's going to be lessened in many ways. You know, I was talking to TL before that I might get different access, right? Um, which is good, but I think uh, it's kind of a they're very. They don't, they don't. a lot of them don't want to improve. A lot of them are very fine with the status quo and are not interested in changing. Some are. I don't want to characterize the entire community as full of people who don't want to improve things for the better. Uh, I know Sola Adesiji, who I interviewed for the book, was like, a lot of the people who are interested in kind of following this more professionalized eSports route are the people who are more supportive of dealing with these kinds of issues. Um... Uh, in the sense that I think they're, as I said that story about Eris, I think they're related right? like the idea of not wanting to change this messy culture is related to not wanting to be seen as this sanitized, I changed to suit you scenario I'm from Japan I've never thought about the
2: orientalism but uh, you mentioned about that there are um, less women playing fighting games but uh, same in Japan, I can see uh, another group of people, subculture, like, we call cosplay gamer. So if you go to the public day press Tokyo Game Show or some of the fan comic events, so you see a lot of girls wearing the, uh, those Chinese dresses, which you saw, show us. On the- Girls, Street Fighters. Yeah. So nowadays, young girls don't scarcely do any sewing, but they, <laughs> you know, face tremendous effort to create their own costumes. So they, maybe they don't play a game, but they are different kind of gamers. So they they are not playing seriously, but they. So there is another group of people who run fun story of the uh, Street Fighters. So. So I don't know how it is here in the U.S., but is there any sort of uh, subculture group surrounding this uh, fighting game?
1: Oh, yeah. We have cosplayers, too. I mean, it's not like wandering through Akihabara, right? Like, you're not going to run into them every 10 feet, like you will there. Um, but... Uh, I think the, the difference there in that situation, one, I think there are a lot more women in the fighting game community than we know about. They're primarily invisible and I think they're mostly protecting themselves. Um, if you want to read more about that kind of thing, Tracy Kennedy has done some great work and so is Kishona Gray on um, how women react uh, to Xbox Live, right? especially scenarios like voice chat. And I think where they, can't, they don't want to or don't reveal themselves as women, And as soon as they do, people react negatively, right? And the problem, of course, is that so much of the fighting game community is centered on in-person play. It's very difficult to protect yourself in that way if you're a woman player, so you might not feel comfortable in that space at all. So part of that is I think there are more women than we know about. The other part is I think this is a very specific culture which is focused on serious play, and I don't want to say that they're the only fighting game players, but they're the ones that the public tastes notice of. Right, I think there's a much broader. I'm one of them. Right, I love fighting games. I can't stand playing against people. I'm a terrible loser. For example, I turn into a complete jerk if you beat me in a fighting game. So I just don't play them with people because I'd rather not be that guy. So um, I think that does happen too here in the U.S. And you know, as as Japanese pop culture has become increasingly more acceptable in American. Fandoms, especially kind of in teenagers and college age, late college age, um, we have plenty of cosplayers too. I think all of those people are still fans, but they're they're definitely engaging it in a very different way, right? I don't think they hold these same beliefs that balance is really important, that it's all about skill, that it's a perfect meritocracy, right? I think they're interested in the narrative and the characters and kind of the fun of it. But they're they're kind of a parallel track of fandom, I think. But they do they definitely do exist. Is there one more?
2: My question is, does the industry has a hand on that? I mean, the game companies do they support or sponsor or sue? Allow you to the activities, and do they change according to the? To the result
1: of the balance of the there is an increasing amount of interaction between the developing companies and the fighting game culture, especially in the past five years. Um, especially since right before Street Fighter came out Street Fighter 4 came out to now. Uh, Seth Killian's hire at Capcom. I don't know this for a fact, but I suspect that the reason that the company who hired the reason the company who makes the Street Fighter series hired one of America's most famous fighting game players to work for them as a community manager—that's probably not a mistake, right? Like, you know, he was there to kind of involve the community in the Street Fighter design process. When I was at Evo in 2009, um, I forget his name unfortunately, but kind of the director of Street Fighter 4 was there to talk to the audience, right? He was just like, and he really said things like, you know, your support is really important. Of course, the problem is that fighting games as a competitive culture are not not very financially solvent right now, especially not compared to really big things like League of Legends and StarCraft and all that other kind of really big-ticket eSports stuff, which I think kind of goes again to that between, do we want to have our messy, personal, it's all about us down-home contest, or do we want to have the the sanitized, everyone's on TV, we're going to have this rock concert for an hour before things for no good reason thing, not that I'm bitter about lol worlds. Um, but <laughs> kind of I, I, I think they're but they increasingly are getting involved and part of the part of it actually is they will bring um, I know Japanese companies will often bring they do locations tech location tests, loc tests, where they come out and they're actually starting to do them in the US too. They'll bring builds of the game to public locations, have players come and give feedback on balance and game design and things like that, and then take it back and incorporate it in. They're doing that with the next iteration of Street Fighter 4 right now, in fact. Um, And part of it, too, is that now we live in an online-capable console era where you can patch these games. How many people know the, like, eight versions of Street Fighter 2, right? Street Fighter 2, Street Fighter 2 Turbo, Street Fighter 2 Turbo Champion Edition, Street Fighter Ultra, no, Super Street Fighter 2, Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo... I'm up to six, I think that's it (laughs) the problem is those were on the Super Nintendo and you couldn't online patch a game in the Super Nintendo era so if you wanted to make a big game balance change you had to make a whole new game right? Um, and then sell it which is kind of notorious for people saying oh, Street Fighter 3 is never going to come out because there were six versions of Street Fighter 2 I think now that they can patch things they're also much more aware of incorporating tournament feedback into their design process also